Hey everyone, this is Tom. Welcome to episode 11 of The Great Divide, part two of our in-depth conversation with Bruce Watson. And today, Bruce is going to begin talking about each big country release, starting with The Crossing. He's going to be giving his favorite track off of each album and giving some behind-the-scenes insights into what went, on, what went into the recording of these albums and some things that you might not have ever heard before. I know that I didn't. So enough of me talking. We're just going to get right into it because I know that's what you guys want to hear, and it's what I would want to hear too. So here we go. All right. So if you guys are ready, and Bruce, if you're up for this, I mean, you know. Yes, we, I've got my coffee here. I'm ready to go. Awesome. We, we just wanted to, like, go through each big country album. I mean, we're not going to labor over them, but, I mean, just spend, like, a few minutes on some highlights of it. So if that's cool with I'm you. assuming you're only going to go through the – the, the the proper release not not all the releases in the live no, albums right just exactly albums, however many yeah. there are. exactly just just the major studio albums yep yes okay the crossing some podcasts ago we started discussing b sides and uh, one of the favorites of both Tom and myself is the song The Crossing. And uh, we were wondering, is this the song that named the album without being on the album? Or did uh, the album title inspire the song? The reason that The Crossing wasn't on the album was a technical reason. Um, basically, we only had vinyl and cassette back in those days and you could only squeeze so many minutes worth of music on each side of the vinyl. And the crossing being such a, a large piece of music, that was the one that well, we we just had to leave it off, you know. Mm. So as simple yeah. as that, it was a technical thing. So you liked uh, songs like the Storm and Poor Man better than the Crossing? No, not necessarily. It's just that we thought that songs like the Poor Man and the Storm were kind of central to that album, um, and the Crossing was just, you know, it was it, it kind of was, but it wasn't in keeping with the rest of the album. It was just a little bit different sounding, and we made that F, we just made a, a conscious decision like, well, something's got to go, and that's the one that's got to go. When you first started working with Stuart on some of those demos that you guys put together, I mean, was when you guys were working together, I mean, did you have a plan? Did Stuart have a sound that he was after that you were trying to get, or did you just kind of naturally play together and and develop the sound kind of uh, in a natural evolution? Well, when Stuart and I first started working with the, the Porter studio up at Town Hill, um, the previous group I was in, Stuart had heard some of my demos and he really liked the song. I can't even remember the title now, but it started off with the original Angle Park bass line, mm. which I, I had written. And he, he liked that and he said, well, let's start off with that song. Um, since you've kind of got it written anyway, then Stuart added a few more bits. second song was um, Harvest Home, um, which Stuart brought to the table, you know. that was different we didn't one kind of unwritten rule we had and I've said it in various interviews before is we didn't want to bend notes on the guitar we didn't want to to um, play like blues licks otherwise we would end up sounding a bit like Thin Lizzy and you know there's nothing wrong with that because I love Thin Lizzy but we just didn't want to sound like that you know right right so, um, we made a conscious effort just no bending on on those notes use a lot of reverb well not reverb but a lot of delay we used on the on the guitar lines, the high-end guitar lines, to make them melodic. Uh, also, a lot of those songs were written on the bass. Mm. Things like uh, even Harvest Home to a certain degree was written on the bass. Uh, wow. was wow. certainly written on the bass. Uh, Angle Park was written on the bass. Uh, it's just because I always remember we had a store over in Dunfermline called Sound Control who just opened, and we actually needed a bass. But Stuart and I's fingers are 
guitar players play the fingers, not bass players' fingers. So <laughs> right. we managed to find this Fender uh, Mustang short scale bass, and we had a lot of fun with that bass, and that's why that album sounds like that. The bass playing was actually written a lot of it was written before Tony and Mark came in, into the band and then when Tony came into the band he, he used the same bass lines but added his style to it as well and made them made it flow like a proper bass player should you know mm. it, we always thought that Big Company needed a bass player as well as having Tony because Tony's up the top end of that bass quite a lot and in the end he actually went out and bought some um, bass pedals to get the low end on stage Shit! I was curious about uh, Stuart obviously coming out of the skids, um, maybe a little disenchanted and uh, looking for something different and uh, obviously hooking up with you and starting Big Country. Uh, I was just curious to hear about the journey towards the Big Country sound. Uh, just imagine he wouldn't come straight out of the skids with a clear idea in his head, but more, more a clear direction. And maybe you got there together. So I'm just curious to hear about that process and of, of getting to that sound. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know what happened in the, the few final days of the skids. I know they were um, recording material up in a, a studio up in Inverness. Um, and, well, Stuart told me previous to that that he always wanted to do, like, a two-guitar thing and that he wanted me to do it. And, you know, a year passed and nothing had happened. I never even thought about it. I just thought maybe Stuart was being kind, you know. It's like, I'd like to do some music with you in the future. And nothing happened. And then... He came down to the flat that Sandra and I had um, and chapped on the door and said, oh, remember I told you about putting this two guitar thing together? Well, now's the time. <laughs> and uh, he went like he went down to, down to a music shop somewhere, I think it was in Edinburgh, and bought himself this new thing called a Porter Studio, which is, you guys all know, um, is just a four-track cassette player. Right. And we he got a couple of microphones. I had a lot of backline stuff and guitars and amps and suited the, his guitars and amps from the skids as well as the, the, the synthesizer and again it was no rules I mean Stuart wasn't even singing at that point it was just basically a drum machine and us two guys sharing bass guitar um, electronic drum kits with one of those electronic it wasn't even a kit it was just a couple of pads that Stuart had well I think Mike Bailey used them in the skids and just started making noises and you know it was, the stuff we were doing was the, again it's the word chemistry there was something there because we were doing stuff that uh, it didn't sound like the skids and it didn't sound like anything else either but there was still elements of the skids there because that's in Gilton Stewart you know right we put the band together um, the early version of the country with um, Peter, Pete and Alan Wishart and um, Clive Parker on drums but it didn't really work out very well but Clive did invent the the Celtic guitar sound, didn't he? Oh, I believe so. I, mean, I believe he invented the whole big country idea. <laughs> yeah, right. He did invent music. He did invent music, didn't he? Yeah, and and he and he, he didn't even realize it until thirty years later, which I think is fantastic. Yeah, but, it's amazing. Uh, I'll I'll cut that out if you want. <laughs> oh, just leave it. Okay, I'll leave, hey, I'll leave it. Oh, no. Shut. Do I to ask Peter a question? What are you, what are your ambitions for Big Country? Because you've you've obviously been involved musically in the past. Um, I'd played in local bands in the town, like most the other guitarists too played in local bands and. Like we never got much of a, a billing or anything with bands from Edinburgh and Glasgow. There was so much competition amongst local bands at this last year, which was happening because it was a great Scottish explosion in bands. And Stuart asked me to join the band about September this year. And like I've always respected and admired what Stuart's done, it just seemed the ideal thing for me to get some sort of way ahead in music. Plus, keep, and enjoy playing with the musicians as long as I could enjoy playing and enjoying doing things with a band. I mean, I'll be perfectly happy. How did you come across all the members in the band? How did you find them all? Well, as Peter was saying, I'd known them all because they all stay fairly local, apart from Clyde, the drummer, who comes from London. And uh, he'll batter me for that, actually. He comes from Camberley. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so the most natural thing was uh, was to go and ask them because I'd, I'd always enjoyed the, the bands they'd been in in the past. How much of an advantage, Peter, is it to to, to be involved with some, with the reputation of Stuart Hannibson? Well, I knew Stuart as a person, a friend, more than somebody that'd been with the Skids, because I knew him when he was with the Skids. He always tried to help us out when we were a local band. And 
it's basically like that. I mean, it was an idea of the band starting off and Stuart explains what this band would be all about. And I was really into the idea, so it's just a fresh start. I mean, it's, I think it's the same with Stuart. He feels it's a fresh start as well as everybody else. And I'm sure we're both equally nervous about playing on Thursday in our opening gig, as Stuart would be the same as everybody else in the band, I think. Is that right, Stuart? <laughs> Suppose recording companies are, are notorious for having very, very short memories indeed. Uh, how do you view the prospect of going and knocking on all the doors again and, and, and no, they'll be knocking being on nice door. to A&R men and all sorts of They'll knock on our door when we start playing, I would think. You think the tour's crucial to this, This the, the support on the Alice Cooper? Well, I, I just I think the band's just got so much going for it. It's just the feeling I get from the, from the group is just really great. It's certainly, of course, the time for Scottish bands, isn't it? Because perhaps, no, it is. perhaps there is um, more of a predisposition among um, London-based A&R men to come and listen to Scottish bands. Well, it's always a problem trying to get people from London up to take any interest in a Scottish scene, but with what's been happening over the past few years, more and more people have been willing to make what is now really a, a short trip. Do you think your writing has changed terribly much since since you were um, working with Skids? Because we're going to play one shortly called um, The Lost Patrol, which tends to echo back to some of the things that... It sounds as if it should echo back to some of the things you were doing in the Skids. Um, obviously, there's bound to be some, some sort of carry across, because as I was writing music for the Skids, you can't just completely change your own personality overnight. But there are quite a few different aspects creeping into the into the music. Plus we have a full-time keyboards player now, which changes the sound totally. What was that first lineup? I know you guys said it didn't work out, and I know that I've read in the past that, um, you know, Ian had said and some people had said that they didn't think the rhythm section was working out. Well, I think it was all down to, apart from Stuart, who was the experienced guy, Stuart had uh, um, done three albums with the skids. And he obviously, you know, he'd be known as news way about songwriting and being in a studio with the likes of Bill Nelson and make gloss up stuff like that um, it was all new to us and there was no kind of A&R direction as such as what came later right uh, and so you had five guys and I mean I, I actually enjoyed it I mean there's no two ways about it I did enjoy it um, but we were all playing probably overplaying it you know it was like almost well, five guys playing something completely different at points when the record company guys were coming up to see us and you know they were saying it's too busy or it's the rhythm section doesn't work I like, we like the sound of the guitars and we like the sound of the keys but you know the, the rhythm section is really really busy I mean Alan Alan Wishart's a fantastic bass player he's a great guitarist as well mm. um, like like myself he, he was younger than me obviously at the time as well and he was just full of energy you know and sometimes songs just require something something simple you know but we were really really busy you know thinking back um musically it was you know almost prog rock at times but it's you know it's like the end section of the crossing the third part of the crossing that was actually pete and Alan wishart that wrote that section the wow. guitar lines that Stuart and i play at the end of that is actually pete's keyboard line oh wow their kind of only co-writing contribution to the art, to, to, to the band, and we kept that bit, because it's such a fantastic piece. I mean, the, the, again, the song The Crossing's in three pieces, and the, the intro to The Crossing with the, the, the delay guitar thing, that came from my previous band. Okay. So the, fir the first third of that song is like uh, the Bruce part of the song, and the middle part of the song is the Stuart part of the song, 
and the third and final part of the song is the, the wizard's part of the song, you know. That middle section is the one that always just gets the hair on, on my neck standing up when you when you guys stop and the guitar goes. It's very it's real typical Stuart kind of skids line that, you know. It's, here, here comes the storm, you know. Bruce, uh, we wanted to just get, like, what's your favorite track from each album? So w- what what would you say is your favorite from The Crossing? I've always had a soft spot for Inwards. It's mm. the only song that we recorded on the Porter Studio from the early days, just shoot myself, and the arrangement has never changed, ever from the early recordings, right through the Chris Thomas recordings, right through the C. Willie White recordings, right through the way we play it live. Um, and again, Stu's lyrics are just, you know, the scouts on the stairwell. It's like, you know, what is that? <laughs> you know? Right. <laughs> uh, so I think Inwards are possibly my favorite. I mean, there's other songs on there that are, are fantastic as well, but I don't know, I've got a soft spot for Inwards. is actually two songs that run into each other and the first half is about how people would sacrifice one generation on behalf of another it's called Where the Roses Sown Alright, so we move on to Steel Town and uh, obviously as a Scandinavian it's interesting for me that you went to Sweden to record it so uh, yes. who was behind that one? That was Steve Lillywhite's idea um, he was earning so much money producing all these bands like The Pretenders, Simple Minds, U2, Big Country at Home that he had to take a year out for tax reasons. Um, and he suggested going out to out to Stockholm to work at ABBA studio. Yeah, just a word on the ABBA connection. Did you see any of those guys? Yeah, we met the two guys. Ah, Bjorn and Benny. Yeah, Benny and Bongo, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was amazing. We were... We were a bit inquisitive and um, we're in the studio and we're upstairs and Stuart and I were like, you know, just messing around and looking through these cupboards and doors and we opened this door and we found all their stage clothes, you know, the big silver platforms. (laughs) 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 They kept it all. Incredible. They were lovely. Um, Benny and Beyond, they they came in, they were, I think they were working on something with, was it Chess they were doing with with Tamais? And they came in, they popped their head around the door, and they were really nice. And it's a wonderful studio, really, really. I don't, I don't even think it's there anymore. Were you, were you wearing their clothes when they popped their head in? No, no, not at all. <laughs> not at that point. Was a very small guy. The second album, the uh, Steel Town album, didn't do quite commercially quite as well as, as the first. Why do you think that was? It's too wild. <laughs> I think it's a very dense album, it's very hard to listen to. I think it's, it goes at full tilt all the time. About the sound of Steel Town, I mean, you're probably well aware that probably the majority of big country fans always cite this as like their favorite big country album. And I mean, it, it definitely is mine. I, I really think, yeah, I'm just going to sound like a, a blubbering fool when I talk about this album, but I really do think it's a, a, it's a masterpiece to me. But the, the thing that really strikes me about this album and always has from the first time I heard it is that it's it's almost like a guitar symphony I yeah. there there are so many guitar parts interwoven and I'm wondering if that's was that something that you guys set out to do we just went mad we went overboard I mean looking back with the experience I've got now I would <laughs> maybe it's an age thing but I would, I would take half of those guitars off or yeah. mix it differently and right. I just, I think the songs on that album are great. Really like like most of the songs on that album. Um, I just do not like the sound of that album. It's mm. it's very. I mean, apart from stuff like Just a Shadow, which I think sounds sounds good, but it's just the overall sound of that album. It was the first time we recorded digitally, um, and we had a lot of trouble with digital clicks and noises, and we used to spend hours and hours removing all these noises. You know. The really wow. time stuff. It was early days of digital tape, but um, I, I don't know. It's there's some great songs on it, without a doubt. But for me, it just the, the overall sound. It's probably the one thing I would go back to and look at again. You know. 
Right. Love to get, you know, just either a remix, but again, that's kind of time consuming and it financially it probably wouldn't be worth it either. I know that you said that there really aren't any demos that exist for the for those sessions, but I think I think I think you said that you, you kind of made a tape of of rehearsing the songs before you actually recorded them. Yes, we did. We there's a, a rehearsal room over in Edinburgh um, that we, we used before we went into the studio and we, we kinda of, we, we do this with every album. Mark tends to stick a, a ghetto blaster um, down at the drum kit, uh, just for reference. And all, all the steel time, or most of the steel time demos, if you can call them demos, they were recorded on cassettes that have long, they're long lost, you know. Right. But they there was no vocals on them. It was just musical ideas, you know. We'll have a, a jam um, and just cycle guitar parts and drum parts. Um, for a couple of minutes and then stop the record and then move on to something else so basically we had all these just like little cassettes just feel uh, just like guitar ideas so there was no demos as such for that album I'm just curious what the arrangements were like of the songs in the very beginning since you guys ended up doing so many overdubs were, were they more you know simplistically arranged when they first started no they weren't even arranged they were just um, like I said it was just cycles around guitar passages or a verse part or a chorus part there was no lyrics at that point got it we just we just recorded as much ideas as we had and there's probably a lot of stuff that we never even recorded uh, we, we never um, used you know so it was basically just a rough sketch I think we were in the studio in uh, the rehearsal room for about oh I don't know maybe a week and it was just basically roughing out um, so from memory, I think Girl With Grey Eyes was one of them that was, that I seem to remember doing that. Uh, the Steel Town guitar lines, they were kind of in there. Uh, Flame of the West was definitely in there. I've got a demo, well, I had a demo of me uh, on my Porter studio doing that one. Very cool. Uh, which obviously it didn't have Tony's bass intro. Tony, that's got three bass guitars on it, that one, you know? <laughs> Does it really? Oh, yeah. Uh, and I had kind of had a, a bit of comeback to me as well but I think most most of the stuff was you know we, we did write that album in the studio okay and it's kind of took bits you know we'd listen to a, a bit of the cassette during the day and right let's see if we can marry that bit up you know that intro up with that verse and that verse up with that chorus so it was a kind of patchwork way of doing it uh, also because it was a second album we had toured the first album. I mean, that first album, all the songs were kind of written before we did that album. Yeah. And been on the road for a long time, a couple of years, whatever, 18 months, and we didn't really have time to write anything new because we were on the road so much. I want to just go quickly back to the uh, Abba Connection one more time. Uh, primarily, uh, the song Heart of the Country, which Stuart wrote for uh, Frida. Uh, I don't yes. know if that came about from being in Sweden. I just have to assume it did. And it's very, very big country-esque. Uh, was it yeah, ever I, a contender? No, never. I mean, it was obviously it was through uh, Steve Otherwhite that Stuart wrote the song for Frida. Um, but no, Stuart never wanted to do it. You know, and we, we never asked him. It was just one of those things. It was a complete separate thing from big country, you know. Um, I've heard the song maybe a two or three times I've heard it it's a great song but no I was never never even thought about or discussed about doing it with Big Country it was Stuart wrote it but it was a Frida song if you, if you see what I mean but if Stuart had wanted to do it then yeah we would have definitely done it
used to say to Stuart, you know, why don't you do Into the Valley or Saints of Coming? It's just, he didn't, he was never kind of disgusted, he didn't want to do it, you know, he thought, well, that's, you know, I've done that. Uh, you know, it was just, we didn't ask Stuart if he wanted to do it, and he didn't say to us, you know, we want to do it, we don't, I don't want to do it, you know, it was kind of some things were just left unsaid, as it were, you know. The fact that you guys are so far away from home, you know, recording that album and we're, you know, kind of locked, not locked away, but you were in a, in a different place. And do, yeah. do you think do you think that atmosphere kind of contributed to the, the dark feelings yes. of Seal Town? Definitely. We were so bloody depressed out there. It was, <laughs> it was so expensive <laughs> to live out there. I mean, we were out there for a good few months. Mm. Uh, you've got to remember, this is in 1983, 84. I mean... <clears throat> There was only two channels on television, and one channel was just dedicated to the Olympics. Another channel was like you had programs like the Life and Times of a Petrol Pump Attendant. <laughs> <laughs> and That's we only had, for you. We had two videos, and we watched these two videos all the time. It was like The Birth of the Beatles was one. Another film was a thing called Fast Walker or Fast Walking. I think James Woods might have been in it. There is just like a sense of melancholy throughout that whole album. I mean, it's it's probably your darkest album, I think, in a, in a lot of ways. Yeah, we were kind of some of us were in a kind of dark place at that time as well, you know. Yeah. I think we needed we needed time off. You know, when you sit to a major record label and you know it's like they want they want their pound of flesh as well, and you got to go to the studio and do it. And I think looking back, we should have took a couple of months off, you know, because we weren't in a fit state. Some and some members of the band more so um, weren't in a fit state to, to do that, you know. And I just yeah. kind of thought, well, looking back, we should have took a bit of time off. 
you know, did a bit more rehearsals when it came out and worked on the songs beforehand, but, you know, you can't change history. Whatever happened to create that, I mean, from, at least from my perspective, it worked. I, I, I just think that's it's just an incredible piece of, piece of music. But uh, why, why do you think so many fans do cite that album as their favorite? I mean, I know you're, you're, looking, you're coming at it from a completely different perspective as the creator of this stuff, but it, fans seem to just gravitate toward that album so much. I mean, do you have any insight into why that might be? I don't know. I mean, maybe it was what was happening at the time in the world, you know. Uh, you know, I mean, we had stuff like looking back, it was like the Falklands War was on the go, and you know, Thatcher was a prime minister at the time was you know basically breaking up the the miners and unions and that stuff. It was just it was a horrible. On the other side of things, you had all this sort of yuppie culture as well. Um, I think you were either there was no middle ground. You were either you know had a lot of money or had no money mm. at, at that time. You know, and it was a kind of strange time for us. Especially coming from Dunfermline, when the, the mines were closing down and the dockyard was going a bit, you know, sideways. And we were kind of, Stuart and I were at that point starting to earn money, you know. We were getting successful when other people around about us were, you know, just, you know, scraping by, you know. It was a, a strange time. Oh, favourite track of Steel Town. Kind of like Tall Ships Go because ah. it's I never played it live, but I think. Song-wise, uh, just a shadow, definitely. And, you know, Mike, once again, Mike, on that Facebook uh, Q&A, he said you guys are going to play Tall Ships Go, just to just to let you know. Yeah, Mike is completely mad. Don't <laughs> <laughs> listen to Mike. He's a complete nutter. <laughs> I tell you what, maybe, maybe one of these times we'll maybe look at it again. I mean... Well, I know I know that intro was tough because Stuart didn't Stuart play it with a coin. He played like the uh, the he used a coin in, in conjunction with the delay pedal there to, to get that really cool. Yeah, yeah it would have been like a, a kroner or whatever. <laughs> the, the currency is out there. Um, I think it did on uh, the live version of Saints Are Coming they used to do that with the coin as well I just think it's one of those songs there's so much going on but I mean Mark's oh god there's so many tracks Mark used up he had ashtrays and (laughs) um, buckets and bins and all sorts of bottles and stuff that he had individually mic'd up and it's just it's just nuts well, you know, you know, fans don't expect you to reproduce it just like it's on the album. I mean, like, uh, you know, for example, I, I got to say, to me, the best version of Steel Town I ever heard was the one you did on uh, Without the Aid of a Safety Net. I just love that arrangement and the way that the guitars are so heavy and uh, I don't I mean if you ever you know decide to do any of the Steel Town songs you haven't played much I think any kind of arrangement would be yeah even a more simplistic arrangement would be 
fantastic for people. So just yeah, uh, set Mike to the task. It's, um, I'll, maybe, I'll maybe take a look at that one. <laughs> That's great. That's great. I'll take a look at that. We used to do Flame of the West live as well, and for some reason we, we stopped doing it. A, lot, a lot of the songs because they were instrumental. I mean, Stuart had a lot of guitars on some of those tracks as well, and when it came around to rehearsing them, uh, trying to sing them and play them, it was really difficult yeah. for Stuart to sing and play them, just because there were so many guitar parts, you know, and I was obviously doing my guitar parts on, on those, I mean, even experimenting with different tunings and the mandolin and slide and stuff like that. There's a lot of that stuff going on, and it's like, well, what, what part do we play live? <laughs> right. so it's almost like we had to, if we were to do that album in its entirety and make it sound like that record, we'd have to bring in another two guitar players, really. Yeah, yeah. You have to get some of the Mike Peters clones that are walking around out there, because we know that they, we know that they exist. Yeah, you have to extend the band. Then again, when we do something like Just a Shadow acoustically, a good song is a good song, and we, we, we play it acoustically, and it's it's a song, you know. Exactly. I mean, and if you just went back to the the root chords of some of those songs, I think you know people would go nuts yeah. over them. So what you know? I mean, Tolshev's mood has got a lot of syncopated, delayed parts and stuff. You know, you, you yeah. couldn't even play those parts unless you had similar equipment to what we had back then, you know, to, to do this, to do any justice. Or right. even to go the other way and do like a stripped down acoustic version, you know, which could be done as well. I, I did it once. <laughs> you did it once? I okay, covered well, that song, yes. Right, let's I, get the guitars out and do it right now then. All right, let's do it. Okay, one, <laughs> two... disappeared from the public eye, rumours began flying about leader Stuart Adamson's condition and the possible demise of the band. People said Stuart was exhausted, Stuart had collapsed, Stuart was in hospital. When I, where do these rumours actually spring from, Stuart? I mean, is there any truth in this? No, what happened was I retired to Transylvania for a few months and took up a vampirish existence. I had your blood changed several times. Yeah, that, all that sort of stuff, you know. How does it work? Living out there on the limit. I don't know. Yeah, you look, you look really, really healthy. You know? <laughs> he went to see Doug Powell in Athletic, really. I was worried about the band losing its freshness and just reiterating on, on things we had done in the past for the sake of carrying on some form of being success, which is something I've never really wanted to do. We do an exception for Nurseless Natives. We have to... Um, to cover that slightly, uh, especially the process of creating and recording that soundtrack. Uh, I have this feeling it, it was mostly Stuart's project and other people were just pulled in as needed. Is that correct? Oh, yes and no. I mean, Stuart wrote uh, all of that, you know, uh, certainly most of it. I would say he wrote 90% of that. Um, it was, uh, again, it was an interesting way of working. I really enjoyed it. Um, you sit there in, the, in front of the mixing desk and you've got a a TV monitor in front of you with a time code of the video. But the mistake the producers made in that movie, when they did the rough edit, or the rough cut of the, the movie, they edited, edited the movie to songs from The Crossing, such as The Crossing, or um, Steel Town, they used Come Back To Me, and the, we had to end up doing soundalikes, which is almost, you know, like doing a pastiche yourself. Um, so we had to do it the same tempo and the same sort of chord structure. That's why Home Come the Angels sounds exactly like um, and Come Back to Me. Oh, wow. Um, there's another song. We, a lot of the, it's, we didn't give them titles of songs. There's one song and it just sounds pretty much like the song The Crossing, you know, because it's got that time signature in it.
but it was great working with Jeff Emmerich, um, who was the Beatles engineer. He kind of produced it. I watched him doing edits on tape, and I watched him editing the, the two-inch master, where they get a razor blade, and he would slit the tape 30 feet, you know, a diagonal, you know, all the way down, and do these crazy cross fades, which obviously you can do on a computer nowadays, but the guy was a genius. Incredible. But I mean, some of the rest is native stuff, so yeah, some cool stuff on it. Um, and also we did the, wrote the incidental music for it as well. It's like Rob Roy, isn't it? There's one legend that says the heroes aren't dead at all, just sleeping underneath the hills, and one day they'll come back. Like ghosts. Something like that. Do you believe in ghosts? Well, first of all, then the Restless Natives thing, Bob. I mean, had you seen the movie or did you know everything about it or what? Yeah, we were actually on tour in Europe at the time when the guys came up with the, with the idea and they brought us out a, a rough video of a, like a sort of rough edit of the film, the way it was going to be. Uh, and I was immediately impressed with that, especially the script. The script was absolutely immaculate and they uh, wanted to do it. Uh, it's, it's a sort of a... It's like a modern-day Robin Hood story. That's right, that's right, yeah. And uh, I spent uh, Christmas time just writing stuff and uh, and getting stuff ready for it. And then we went into a small studio in Glasgow, Park Lane, and recorded it in there. Well, as opposed to sort of a soundtrack, what about, like, for instance, you released one or two bits on the B-side of singles and things like yeah, that as well. Yeah. Now, what, 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 like, what about the thing itself? Were you happy the way it was used in the film? Yeah, definitely. When they were going along on the motorbike, you hear because I think when you're, when you're doing something like that, you're actually writing to illustrate what there is on, on, the, on the, the screen itself. When you're writing songs, the images are all in your own head, and you know, you know the sort of things that you're trying to portray. But it's like you're working to a fixed exercise, working to someone else's visuals. And I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the discipline of it. That, that was really good. And I think uh, because I wrote specific tunes and specific melodies for specific parts of the film, I, th I think it worked really yeah. well. But we didn't want to sort of release it in the middle of 1985 when we were getting ready for the new album in case people thought, oh, this is the third big country album and there's only two songs and the rest all instrumentals, you know. So we, instead of doing that, we did it as, as B-sides. That's a drum machine on re the, the actual studio cut of Restless Natives, right? No, it's real drums. Sounds like a drum machine. Mark hates the sound of that. Oh, that's really him playing? Are you that, kidding me? Oh, that is... You're talking about the, the track Restless Natives? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's real drums. Wow, I never would have... I thought for sure it was a drum machine. No, it's, I mean, Mark, Mark hates it. It's because the the drum sound is seriously gated. It's got the big reverb on the snare and on the bass drum, and it's gated, um, which means, from a technical point of view, instead of it going, it goes, right? So that's what right. I call it. Um, and in the process of doing that, you've left out all Mark's little amazing that's that's really interesting to hear because yeah because that's what i was listening for that used to make me think it was a drum machine that i didn't hear any of those grace notes of mark and it just sounded so robotic yeah it does sound like a drum machine so yeah and especially the snare drum yeah there's also other snare drums that have been sampled in there that trigger off the the gate you know you would you get a sound gate get the snare drum and you could generate another snare drum sound just to get a bit of a bit of separation, as it were, in the mix, but it was another 80s thing. I mean, I did listen to Restless Natives to, to learn Stuart's guitar parts for it um, before we went out, and I, I just kind of thought, my God, that snare drum is so... It does sound like a drum machine. Yeah. It's so loud. I have to take your word for it, because it's it's it really sounds like a drum machine, and that snare no, drum is the main culprit, really, of that. Yes. No, I can assure you, Mark actually played that, and the reason I know was because I was there. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it does sound like a drum machine, and Mark just does not like it at all. Wow. Yeah. And, I, and I agree. <laughs> Okay, so uh, from what little we know about uh, the deadline, it uh, was extremely tight. And uh, by all accounts, Stuart was so burned out that he nearly left the music business after this. How do you remember this period? No, I don't true? remember it at all. <laughs> the deadline. Okay. There was no deadline as far as we know. Obviously, there's a deadline for everything, but I don't know where you got that information from, so I mean, <laughs> Okay. We just, that was just another project for us to do, to do the soundtrack. That was... Uh, that was done in between Steel Town and the Seer. 
Right. I think there, I think there were some comments in one of those. Uh, maybe it was a certain chemistry. I'm not sure, but it, it, it might have been Ian saying that he thought that Stewart was taking too much on when he did that, and that uh, he, he felt like it was it was too much pressure that he was under to try to finish that soundtrack and then get to work on the next album. I don't know. Maybe that's not as far as I remember. It was just another. It was another project. We didn't have anything else on the books for that year. Gotcha. And, and then the, the soundtrack thing came through, and we just did it. And then we finished that, and we, we did this year from yeah, there. It, it, it's funny because uh, in an interview that I that I've heard with Stuart. Uh, talking about the seer they, the interviewer asks him he says uh, well if you were at home quite a lot in 1985 does that mean that if you brought out the seer album that you have a lot more songs to go for another one then no no, <laughs> <laughs> no so, well it's, it's like I had to write two albums last year because I did all that stuff for, for the movie and then, then did the stuff for, yeah. for this record ok yeah, that's enough alright well let's move on to the seer now, are, are you doing ok Bruce yeah I'm fine ok, okay awesome i, I I feel bad that we're keeping you so long, but you know this is—I mean, this is great information. So we really, really appreciate it. Let's let's go for it. Let's let's do it. The problem you've got with the third album is that you've got the sound still sufficiently like Big Country, but also sufficiently different. Yeah, I think. See, uh, that's yeah, that's how a critic would look at at it. If a critic was making an album, he'd think, oh, they've got to do this and I've got to do that. Whereas when you're actually in the band and you're making the music and writing the songs, all you do is write the songs as you feel them at the moment. You can't sort of turn on and turn off the inspiration as it comes on. It's not like that. It's not like going to the kitchen and doing that. Okay, I, I know the Alan Glenn book is not something that the band uh, necessarily even approves of, but I, I do have it and I read it. And the one thing that's interesting about it that I, for me as a fan, is that there were some interviews with some guys who were involved in your past from a record company standpoint. And one of those guys was someone who I'd never even heard of until I read that book, and his name was Dave Bates. Oh, yeah, Dave Bates was the... He took over from Chris Briggs. Uh, for, uh, he became an A&R guy. Yeah. Chris Briggs, basically, he left... Um, I think he went to, oh, I don't know, a and I think it was. And basically, Dave Bates inherited Big Country, but I don't think... He was more into Tears for Fears. He looked after Tears for Fears, who I thought made some great records. Mm-hmm. And Dave Bates did make some great records, but he, he wasn't really a Big Country man. And I, know, I know there was a lot of friction between Dave Bates and our manager at the time, Ian Grant. Um, and I just kind of think... We went down the totem pole there, you know. Really, we should have a key man clause where we went with Chris Briggs because he was a real champion of the band. Yeah, and and that's kind of what I gathered from reading Dave's quotes. I mean, he's he he said he was kind of brought in to sort of try to reignite your your chart success since Steel Town really didn't have a big hit single off of it, and um, it, he he kind of uh, takes some credit for steering you guys toward the sound that you got on Look Away and that kind of success. I mean, do you, do you not, think... Not really. No, no, he didn't get involved in that. Okay. Uh, I do know that he, he had Look Away remastered umpteen times to get it sounding radio friendly. Uh, and he did a great job, I must admit. You know, he did a fantastic job. And it was at the time of 12-inch mixes as well. And I remember coming down to the studio and there's a saxophone solo and there's a trombone solo and I'm going, what the <laughs> hell is this? Get that off, you know? And um, he basically banned me from the studio. So I said, sorry, I'm off. I'm going back to Scotland. So look away. Dave Bates, I mean, you know, everyone wants to rule the world, which was Tears for Fears, Dave had a big say in that. You know, pretty much like what he had, you know, to get, really these guys want to get you sounding as commercial as possible. They want you on the radio. They, they want right. you getting everybody. They want record sales. Right. I, I just, I don't think he was the right man to be a and us. And I don't think anybody's came close since Chris, Chris Briggs. Yep, yep. But, but then again, I'm not having a go at Dave Bates, we just were not the music for him. Another thing that was a revelation, uh, this co- comes from uh, an interview with Classic Rock a year or so ago, where uh, the fact that other people were suddenly in the studio playing on these songs, which uh, is an absurd notion to me. No, Can you just tell really, about that? I was only on, um, I think it was The Teacher. 
right. to teach us when I actually got banned from the studio. It was like I went down and I think we were doing the overdubs in Chelsea. And uh, Robin Miller's original mixes I liked, but Dave didn't. So those got scrapped and he brought in a guy called Walter Turbett. And I walked in the studio and he's, Stuart's in the studio as well, and there's Walter playing rhythm guitar on the teacher. What's this all about? Eh? And Stuart just says, oh, let's just let them do that, eh? Because, you know, <laughs> and it was only for the 12-inch mix, and then they had all this um, mad synthesizer, Fairlight stuff going on, and I think they did on one great thing as well. They had all this Fairlight and kind of yeah. keyboard stuff going on, and saxophones, and it was just taking it away from what um, we wanted to sound like. Okay, Robin Miller. I, I was reading uh, as well that what you just alluded to, which was that his original mixes, the, the record company didn't like them and, and wanted to, and brought in Turbot to come in and remix them. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what those original mixes were like versus what the finished product was like. I can't remember now. Um, I did have a mix on cassette years ago, which is, again, is long lost. Okay. And they were just really good balances, really, really good mixes. I kind of thought... You know, they were as good as um, The Crossing. Mm. Uh, certainly, I prefer the sound of it uh, on top of Steel Town. Um, but I, I guess Dave Bates, he's, he's, he's heady, he was heady in earlier, so he's obviously very talented and he's got a commercial ear. And I just think he thought, well, this could be better for radio, you know? Right. And that's why. And at that point, we were just kind of anything for a quiet life, let them do it. If we get a hit out of this, then we're all laughing kind of thing, you know? Just let them go ahead with it. And what about Kate Bosch's on the album as well? Yeah, well, uh, that was uh, that was a big one for me, definitely, because I've been a big fan of hers for uh, for many years. And uh, because the, the song, The Seer, that, that, that she sings on, is actually, has a woman as the, as the central character, we thought it'd be good to have a woman sing quite a bit of the vocals on it. And I, I phoned her up and asked her if she would do it and sent her a tape and she phoned back and said she loved it and had worked out an arrangement for stuff and stuff. And came into the studio and sung for 14 hours straight, just like that, and it yeah. was amazing. Robin Miller was talking about the, uh, the the song The Seer with Kate Bush, and he said uh, he was very angry that the, at the way they remixed the Kate Bush's vocals. He said that they were originally very upfront in the mix, and apparently, yeah. apparently Bates' comment was that he thought it sounded too much like Chardet. <laughs> so whatever that means, I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah, but he's only saying that because um, Robin had produced Shadi's album before he did the Seer. Ah, he, okay. That's why. But uh, for memory, no, I, I don't know the last time I listened to the Seer. I, I did listen to it not so long ago just to uh, work out a couple of bits and bobs that we were going to do live just on Look Away. Mm. And the sound of that record is very dated. You can hear... All the reverbs are too much on certain things. You can you can you can say well that's a Yamaha SPX90 that's on that, or that's a Rev7, or that's an Eventide, or whatever. You know different pieces of kit. And the way it's been mixed, it's just uh, plastic is the kind of only way I can describe it. I mean it's a good mix. There's, I mean Rob, um, Robert Turbot did a, did a job on it, but it's just a different way of thinking from Robin Miller's. Um, original mix. To me, it sounds dated. It sounds very 80s is the only way I can describe it. No, I, I know exactly what you mean. I, I think that especially holds true on the drums. As great as the drums are, there's kind of like an 80s sound to the drums. Yes, definitely. It, it sounds a bit like the bass drum's been recorded in one room and the snare drum's been recorded at a, set, a different time in a, a different room. Yeah. You know, you've got like reverb sounds on the snare. And, you know, it's got its moments this year. It's definitely... It's definitely a big country-sounding album, without a doubt. So what about if you do a two-and-a-half-hour set with 23 or 24 songs? Any new ones in that? Um, I th think this year uh, we haven't done this year so far, and Hold the Heart, a new single, is something we haven't been doing live. And The Sailor from the album. I think we're actually doing eight tracks from the new album now. 
plus mm-hmm. uh, another 15 from, from previous albums and old singles and stuff. I was uh, referring to an interview with Stuart where he talked about adding Hold the Heart and the Sailor to the set list at the time. And uh, you played Hold the Heart live, but you never played the Sailor, uh, which is one of what I consider the great big country epics. Uh, did you ever rehearse it and uh, prepare to play it? No, we, we, uh, that's another one I do remember rehearsing that job my memory. We did rehearse that uh, um, in the studio before we recorded the album. Mm. Um, but it was just one of those songs that there's loads of songs you it's like you can't play everything, you know, right. otherwise you've gone all night. So we're up to album number three now. So obviously you've still got to play the hits that you've had. You've got to play the key tracks from The Crossing, the key tracks from Steel Town and some of the new songs and it's like you know you'd be on stage for four hours if you if you chose everything and it's <laughs> right it's just one of the songs that we didn't bother looking at you know yeah it's quite an ambitious track it's a great track i love that middle section where it goes into that sort of almost russian sounding cossack piece you know yes well guess what bruce i i uh i covered that song <laughs> you covered that song <laughs> Okay, one, two, three. Oh, that's a great little song. That, oh, little song. It's a great song, you know. Talking about the the seer playing, you know, the live tour of the seer. There, there's a there's a classic big country moment that all fans, you know, always talk about. And that's from the Seer Live in New York video when Stuart stops the song inwards when there's yes. a fight that breaks out in the audience. And, uh, you know, it's just like it's just a great moment. Um, not necessarily a great moment, but it's one of those moments that, you know, you always remember. Of course, the camera the camera never pans out to the crowd to see what's happening. Obviously, there must have been some sort of fight going on. But I'm wondering if you remember anything about that from your perspective on stage. Yeah, I do remember. I just, I mean, back then, uh, it's different nowadays. I think because of health and safety, and they've got barriers up now, and you've got more stewards. It doesn't happen as much as it did back then. I don't, I don't know what happened. I couldn't see the fight, and then as we have been on stage. You've got those lights that are in your face, you know, and sometimes you, you can't see, you know, three or four rows back, you know. Yeah. But you kind of saw a, a commotion kind of thing happening. And I, I absolutely hate stopping my song for whatever I, reason. You look, just, you look so pissed when that happened. I cannot stand it, you know. I just felt like, again, it's a great song and we were, you know, three quarters of the way through it and whatever. We had to stop because somebody was getting a face battered in or whatever, I couldn't quite see, but you can see the kind of see a commotion. Right. Uh, and then just to start up again. But I, I actually did a, an edit on that song just for fun. I, I played it to Willie today, actually. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> where it was came from. And uh, I've actually edited out the fight. <laughs> so I've got an edit where it just goes right from before the fight to where we kick back in, and the edit is seamless, believe it. <laughs> oh, I'd love to hear that. That's fantastic. <laughs> Well, it's just so funny. I mean, Stewart is just smiling, looking out into the audience. You've got that close-up of his face, and then his his rea- his facial expression immediately changes to one of just like, what is happening here? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, it just, it just spoils it, doesn't it? You know? Yeah, yeah. I, I do get frustrated, you know, when a song has to stop. It, it didn't harm too much, but when it does harm, it's, you know, you're, you're, you want to give people value for money, and you're, you're playing your heart out kind of thing, you know, and you want to put in a good show, and then... Some idiot kind of just spoils it, you know, sometimes just to get their own attention and whatever, you know. I always hated it when people got on the stage as well because 
you know, that we've got all this electricity at our feet, you know, and sometimes you suddenly would chuck a pint of beer up on the stage and it's, oh, you know, get on the stage, they could pull a cable out and get a nasty shock and whatever. I just have one more question before we ask you your favorite track, Bruce. And th- oh, from that, the Seer. Yeah, from the Seer. Oh, um, do, do, do. I'll go with the Sailor. Ah, awesome. Awesome choice. Perfect. Th- let me ask you one thing real quick about Kate Bush. Was it amazing watching her perform? Did she uh, did she uh, impress you? Oh, man, it was unbelievable. Like I said, we were up the stairs and you could kind of look down a little bit. So we weren't, she wasn't in front of us when she did it. Mm. But... You know, we listened to it through the monitors, and it's not a backing vocal, it's a featured piece, and she had all these overdubs. I mean, I don't know how many overdubs she had on it, maybe about eight or something like that. Wow. And she just made this whole section that was like, you know, this person's taking all this amount of care and being creative about it. She just not came down and did a couple of doo-wops and woe-oes, you know, she really went to town with it. Uh, absolute genius. That was, that was a, a highlight, definitely. Given Kate Bush's involvement in that song, it's kind of surprising you didn't use it as a single. Too long. The record company thought it was too long. Ah. And it is, it is too long. And we, there was talk about us trying to find some edit points to bring it down in time to be a single. But it's just the way the song built, and especially having Kate's vocals, it, would have, it wouldn't have made sense to edit it. You would have cut through the vocals. And it was talk about it being a single, especially being the title track. But it was just too long and it was impossible to edit. You could probably do it nowadays with the old computer technology, but back then, you know, mucking about splicing tape razor blades and stuff, you know? Yeah. And you'd already cut one verse out of that song, if I remember correctly, because you added it back when you played it live. It was like, who? there is more There is more that she said, much better left alone, but who are we to question her who walks among the stones? Or- <laughs> Yeah, that was actually cut out of the album version, so and it was played live, yes. Possibly, again, due to the technicals, it was on vinyl again, or it was out on CD. Right. Um, possibly cut out. Was it cut out in the CD version as well, that version? It was, yeah, yeah. Yep, because I, I remember those lyrics were in the lyric sheet, but they were never they were never on the song, and I, I used to wonder about that. And then when I saw you do it live, you used to do that verse. Right, so, I see. Just an interesting little tidbit there. All right. Oh, you're, so you, you, you're now the official archivist. John, you're sorry. <laughs> <laughs> now, John's got me beat, believe me. Wow, some amazing stuff from Bruce there. Just incredible information. A lot of stuff that I didn't even know, and I've been following the band for for 30-plus years now, as I'm sure most of you have, too. So incredible stuff from Bruce. Uh, On behalf of Svine and myself, we just want to once again thank him so much for taking the time to do this. I mean, it's just a wealth of information. And the next episode, we're going to be picking up exactly where we left off here, and it's going to be lucky episode number 13, and it will be lucky for us because... Bruce is going to continue talking about each major release all the way up through driving to Damascus. So it should be a fascinating must listen. So on behalf of Tom, Svein, John Guvea, and everyone else who helps make this podcast go, we want to say thank you once again to Bruce, to Willie Welder, to Jamie, to the whole Watson family, to Big Country in general, and, um, and to you guys for listening, especially our new listeners who've come aboard as a result of this Bruce Watson trilogy fest. 
So we really appreciate it. We hope you'll stick with us even after this is over. Um, it's just a fun show that Svine and I do, and we really have a great time doing it. Hopefully that, hopefully that comes through. So be on the lookout for episode 13 coming soon. It won't be as long of a wait as usual for this next one. I know you guys really want to hear the rest of this, and I want to get it out to you, so we will get it out as soon as we can. So just stay on the lookout for it. It won't be very long. So stay up to date with us if you want the up-to-the-minute stuff on what we're doing and when a show is coming out, some ideas for a show or, or some insight into what we're going to be doing in, the fu- in future episodes. Just come visit us on our Facebook page. Like us. Uh, go to Facebook.com and search for The Great Divide Podcast, and you'll find us. You can also email us at bigcountrypodcast at gmail.com. That's bigcountrypodcast at gmail.com. And if you indulge me for just a second so that I can give a uh, personal plug, if you have any interest, please check out my own music, my own original music at ReverbNation, R-E-V-E-R-B Nation.com slash Thomas Kirchival. I've got a lot of uh, original music up there you might enjoy, so please feel free to take a listen. With that, on behalf of Swine and myself, We want to thank you guys for listening and stay tuned for another great episode with Bruce Watson next time. Thanks again.